0: What's happening here is women are showing their agency as they follow Christ.
1: Welcome to the Know Why podcast. I'm your host, Liberty McCarter. For many of us, it's not enough to know what people say about life's most important questions. We also want to know why. Each week, Know Why tackles tough questions on topics ranging from spirituality to current events. While we approach these issues from a Christian perspective, we discuss diverse opinions and ultimately dive into what the research says. Are you ready to know why? Let's get started. Welcome to the Know Why Podcast. We are still in our series, Know About Jesus. Today, we're exploring a question that means a lot to me and to a lot of people How did Jesus treat women? First of all, it's interesting to note that what some people may not realize is that here in the U.S. and around the globe, more women than men identify as Christians. And yet a lot of people are under the impression that Christianity, which is the faith that follows the teachings of Jesus, is misogynistic, sexist. And to be fair, there have been and still are many people, churches, and religious institutions where women have not been treated well. But we don't want to rely on impressions, presumptions, or stereotypes here at the Know Why podcast. We want to look at exactly what Jesus said about women and what his example tells us about the Christian faith and how Christians should think about women. And here to explore that with us is Dr. Sandra Glon. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Glon. Totally
0: my pleasure. Thanks for asking.
1: Dr. Glahn is a professor of media and art, media arts and worship at Dallas Theological Seminary. She holds a Master of Theology degree from DTS and a PhD in the humanities, aesthetic studies from the University of Texas at Dallas. Dr. Glahn is a journalist and the author or co-author of more than twenty books, including the Coffee Cup Bible Study Series and Nobody's Mother: Artemis of the Ephesians in Antiquity and the New Testament. She is a frequent podcast guest and retreat speaker whose areas of expertise include Artemis, Ephesus, Bible books and backgrounds, women's history and issues, the history of ideas about gender, sexuality, and ethics, and writing for publication. So again, we're so grateful that you're here. And let's just jump right in. We want to talk about a little bit of the cultural context surrounding Jesus' ministry on earth. And so if I'm correct, he was Um, conducting his earthly ministry around AD 29 30 that you know era and he was speaking primarily to a Jewish audience but also with the context of Roman um, oppression at the time so there were kind of two you know cultural contexts at play there so can you talk about um those societies and how they viewed and treated women at that time.
0: Sure. Well, in the agrarian world, which is most of the world at the time, Mm -hmm. uh, the pecking order is men, animals, women, and children. Your animals are your 401k, your meals on wheels, Mm -hmm. your bank account. Mm -hmm. And so women are already not terribly well treated. And then in Rome, uh, you see in the inscriptions, those give, give us a lot, the writings in stone, tell us that uh, a woman of nobility might have a lot of power. So it's not that women didn't hold any public positions. Uh, I liken it a little bit to the last presidency where there's a daughter in the White House with a lot of power, Mm. not elected power, but socioeconomic power that gave her then a voice into politics. Mm -hmm. Very similar thing happening with the nobility in the Roman Empire and the higher-ups. And that's why you might have heard of Livia, you know, the wife of an emperor. If you even think back on what we've learned of women's history, typically the women we know of have an association with power Mm -hmm. rather than holding it themselves.
1: Right. So what are some examples of Jesus rejecting those norms or, you know— acting in a different way in the way that he interacted with women?
0: Yeah, good good question. Well, first of all, part of that background and how it intersects with Jesus is it's tough for a woman to get a divorce. Mm. And so uh, it's not impossible. Paul talks about both men and women divorcing, but that should help inform our understanding then of an encounter he has with a Samaritan woman, because when he says, you've had five husbands— We Americans typically think she's loose. Mm. Our first thought should be they died. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, The number one cause of death for women is childbirth. The number one cause of death for men is war. Mm. And there are even some laws earlier, uh, emperors before Christ passed, about how many children a woman should have in order to get more freedom from men. So, it's an incentive for them. You can have less authority over you if you have more children. Wow. If you're a freeborn woman, the standard is lower. I think you have to have three. And if you, you know, are freed, then four. Wow. Uh, my understanding is uh, from one of the experts that you had to have five children for zero population growth. So there's this huge demand to keep the army staffed. And so there's a pressure on women for fertility. Mm -hmm. So in that context, you have Jesus talking to this woman at the well. And the first thing you notice is the disciples return and go, why is he talking to a woman? Mm -hmm. So he's going against convention Mm -hmm. by talking to her. And then if she wasn't actually a loose woman, then how are we to understand the husband, the man you have now isn't your own? Mm -hmm. Well, there, there are some big musts in this world. And so if we relook at that story as maybe this woman has had heartbreak after heartbreak after heartbreak, and now she can't even have a a man to herself, she has to agree to, in order to eat, be sharing Hmm. another wife, then that changes how you read Jesus saying, you've had five husbands. He is approaching her at her point of pain, not at her point of sin. Now, Jesus certainly deals with sin in other yeah. places, but there's nothing in this story that suggests that's what's happening. And in fact, up until the Middle Ages, the church understood her as being a good woman, a woman who's waiting for Messiah, a woman who asks him theological questions. And she's the only one to whom Jesus comes right out and says, I am. Mm. Everybody else is like, are you saying? And Jesus is like, did I say it? You know, uh-huh. you read between the lines with her she said, like, you're not Messiah, aren't you? And he said, the one speaking to you, I am. Wow. And she, you know, I don't think Jesus ever did get a drink. <laughs> He's mm-hmm. there thirsty. We've tended to look at the detail that she's there at noon and read into that, that she's ostracized. But most of my friends who've been in uh, parts of the developing world can tell you there are people at the well all day long. It depends on how big your water canister is. And mm. water's heavy. yeah. So you might have to go multiple times, mm-hmm. uh, particularly if it's washing day. And so to read even something into that, I think what we're supposed to read into that detail is Jesus is hungry. And mm-hmm. that's why the disciples have gone to get food. So what does that tell us about Jesus? Jesus is going against convention mm-hmm. and he's even going out of his way to show up in Samaria. Uh, typically people would avoid going through Samaria mm-hmm. for a Jewish... So he out of his way, goes to this woman who's been waiting for Messiah and, you know, he talks to her and they talk theology. And the next thing we know, the whole village has shown up. Wow. Yeah.
1: that And what changed? I know this wasn't on my list of questions, but when did we start interpreting that story differently? Because yeah. I feel like this is such a good example of how our own cultural context will affect the way we read scripture. Yes,
0: yes. Well, in the Middle Ages, for sure. And then after the Reformation big time because the Reformation comes in and says, we are overemphasizing singleness and we swing the pendulum the other way and say marriage is the only ideal. Mm. Uh, And so part of what gets lost in that is women's history. Mm -hmm. Because if you're telling the stories of saints every week or really every day, then you are getting these examples of men and women. But when uh, we rightly say, hey, the New Testament calls every believer in Christ a saint, Mm -hmm. but then... What we do is we keep the really good parties like Valentine's and Patrick, mm-hmm. but we throw out the rest. And that means we've lost the stories that the church would have known all the way up to the mid-1500s mm. as a part of daily life. Wow. So fascinating. Um, yeah, it makes me want to learn more. But,
1: you know, another question. Um, a lot of people are familiar with the
0: fact that Jesus had 12 disciples, yeah. but they're all male. Yes. So what does that mean? Well, they're also all Jewish. Does that mean the church is supposed to be all Jewish? Well, that was the challenge in Galatia. That's what they're arguing about. It's a very difficult problem. Mm -hmm. But I think something else that's essential to look at there is where else have we seen 12 men? We've seen them in the sons of one of the patriarchs, and they become the 12 tribes of Israel. Mm -hmm. And then where do we see 24? We see 24 elders in the future in Revelation around the throne. So by choosing 12 Jewish men, Jesus is showing, I am not starting a new religion. I am building on what is already here. There's, there are already covenants in place. You know, I I am not rejecting the law. I'm not changing the law. I'm getting us back to the heart of law. So I think we miss a key point there when we just extrapolate it's only men. uh, And, and miss that what that communicated to a Jewish audience,
1: oh, yeah, so interesting. And he did have several women who followed him, even though they're not officially yeah. named as him, and the they bankroll him, in mm-hmm.
0: fact, which totally flies against the idea that it hurts a guy's manhood for a woman to provide financial support. Well, not if they're supporting a ministry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the priority should be ministry. right? And if that means you humble yourself and receive finances, <laughs> then you do it because there's a bigger priority mm-hmm. than male pride. Right, yeah. I'm not saying there's an innate male pride. I'm saying that cultural pride that's assigned to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, for sure.
1: Um, and so fast forwarding to Jesus um, dying on the cross three days later, mm-hmm. uh, the Bible says that he comes back to life. Right. And the first person that he speaks to is a woman, one yeah. of his friends. And so I think, again, Today, we might just kind of read that and not really think about it too much, but right. was that pretty significant?
0: Yeah, especially because what he says is, go tell my brothers. Mm. <laughs> um, and so there are a couple of different uh, representations of the story uh, of the resurrection. And in one of the uh, accounts of the death of Christ, all the guys have disappeared and the women have stayed till the end. And in another account, all of his disciples ultimately, you know, are chicken. <laughs> but I think what that is not supposed to be, again, a, a diss on men. It's more an emphasis on of Jesus having on the ostracized, the marginalized, the unheard, the powerless, and certainly in his world, that's going to be the case. And so, yeah, for him to say to Mary, go tell my brothers, the first one he talks to— And he's telling her to go speak and use her words. In fact, uh, Thomas Aquinas, one of the great minds of the faith in the uh, Middle Middle Ages, uh, calls her an apostle to the apostles because the word apostle means sent one. Mm -hmm. And he is sending her to the sent ones to say he's alive. Wow. Yeah. That's just so beautiful. Um,
1: Can we, I know you mentioned again, we were talking a minute ago about how, so there were women who really supported Jesus' ministry financially, but there were actually a lot of roles um, and that women played in Jesus' ministry and in the very early church, um, you know, different positions held. So can we talk about
0: some of those examples? Oh, I'd love to. So first of all, we can look in the New Testament and see that it's recorded that on Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost, the birthday of the church, you have men, women, Jew, Greek, uh, slave free. So you have gender, you have ethnicity, and you have socioeconomic status. And a sign of the spirit is that they're all proclaiming publicly the good news. Mm-hmm. So it's not just reserved for male Men, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, male Jews, right? Uh, it's, it's a sign of the spirit, not a sign of male failure that everybody is proclaiming good news. Right. When you fast forward to Paul's letter to the Corinthians and he's correcting something that's going on in the church with how uh, women are, uh, it looks like how they're wearing their hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, I, I, My best understanding of the culture, and I've spent spent a lifetime looking at this, is that wearing your hair down was like taking off your wedding ring. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's a sign of freedom, liberty, Mm -hmm. but uh, maybe not the place and, Mm -hmm. and the way to do it. But here's what's interesting about that. So he tells them to take care of their hair if they're going to pray and prophesy. But he's not questioning whether they can open their mouths in church. Right? He's assuming they're going to pray and prophesy. Mm -hmm. So then three chapters later, when he's talking about keeping silent, we have to, we have to not just throw out that he's made that assumption because it's also mentioned that Philip, uh, has prophesying daughters, four of them. Mm -hmm. And so you see prophecy in the church and whatever you want to talk about what that is, women are opening their mouths as a, as a movement of the spirit And in the last days, that's going to start happening again, Mm -hmm. it says. You fast forward to Peter's teaching, and Peter talks about women and men being priests to our God. In the book of Revelation, men and women are priests. So, What does a priest do? A priest leads worship, Mm -hmm. guides other people to the throne. And so women and men are part of this. We've tended to look only back to Genesis Mm -hmm. instead of looking Genesis to Revelation to get— who is woman and what was she made for? Mm-hmm. So what what happens then later in the New Testament is you see Phoebe, who Paul sends from uh, an area near Corinth called Cancria to the Roman Christians. He's never met the Christians in Rome, but he's heard about them. She delivers the letter that we know is the book of Romans, and we know that often the person delivering read it aloud and even maybe was coached on how, where the problem areas might be that need some explaining. Mm-hmm. And and so she's called a deacon. You have Junia, who's called an apostle in that same chapter, Romans 16. And you also um, you have early martyrs and bone collectors. So the bone collectors are... Um, It's rooted in the the long historical history of Judaism of having a high view of physicality. You look at uh, the very first line in Genesis and God is making matter. Mm. You look at how rooted our Christian faith is in physicality. It's a physical incarnation of God coming as a baby. It's a physical death, a physical burial, burial, a physical resurrection, a physical ascension. And so when believers died... As a nod to this, they were not cremated. Mm -hmm. They are given a proper burial. And so if somebody is martyred and you're running in to gather their bones to give them a proper burial, you're risking your life because you're identifying with them. And women were tortured and killed for doing that Mm. but so you see them in the catacombs you see some of the art in the catacombs you see women martyred you particularly see virgins martyred and what's significant i think for us to again we look at our western eyes and we immediately think purity culture Mm. and we think something unhealthy not to be confused with purity right right (laughs) purity culture and that's not what's happening what's happening here is women are showing their agency as they follow christ Mom and dad say, hey, we're going to marry you off to this jerk of a nobleman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she's like, no, I'm married to Jesus. Oh, no, you're not. You don't get to make that choice. Kill me if you have to. Mm. <laughs> uh, you know, and I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm not yeah. marrying that man. And so you have this whole generation of virgins who are saying, I am consecrated to Christ. And it's it's early nuns. Yeah, And then we see widows as a church office. And what's interesting about that is rooted in First Timothy 5, where it says uh, a wife of one husband. Mm-hmm. Um, did they wash the feet of the saints? Like, did they care for the poor? They have this certain kind of character. And we'll, if so, we'll put them on the rolls. And it's not just the rolls so they can eat. Christians fed people who are hungry. They right. didn't vet them for whether they'd been married, right? Mm-hmm. But it looks like we have the early roots of nuns in that as well. And I found a fifth century ordination prayer for the office of widow.
1: Wow! And
0: the name was probably later changed to deaconess, maybe third century or or later. And again, this is where we get the beginning of nuns, which are consecrated women. Some of them have never married and some of them have been married and lost husbands, but they're women. It basically means a without a man, woman. Mm -hmm. We even see an early... uh, early person describing uh one of the early fathers describing the uh, vir- the widows who are virgins mm-hmm. now again as american you're like wait what uh-huh. he's not talking about their sexual status he's he's talking about a rank
1: mm-hmm. in the
0: church and even talks about where the widows are seated behind the elders be sure to tune in next
1: week for part two of our interview with dr glahn